0: This is the Mutual Audio Network.
1: The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Sonic Speaks! Welcome to Sonic Speaks, I'm Jack Ward, and this is Season 5, The Nightfall Project. On our third excursion into the amazing 40th anniversary of Nightfall, I speak to Christopher Cutrus, who worked for years with editing and sound production for CBC Vancouver. Chris is a natural storyteller, and despite his, you know, complaining earlier that he didn't have a lot of memories, the fantastic stories kept coming long after the recording had stopped. So this is me and Chris Cutrus. You've been involved with the CBC as a producer. How long have you been involved producing?
0: Well, I was actually a recording engineer okay. for CBC Radio Drama, also music production. I did concerts on demand, where I was basically editing all the work the other recording engineers were doing musically and posting uh, that on the on the net. Even though I was a recording engineer, I did produce or associate produce a number of productions over the years, but. My primary job was as a recording engineer. Especially when it comes to Nightfall, I was a sound effects and recording engineer. I was the only one in Vancouver that was doing both.
1: I heard your name in the sound effects, and we have a lot of people who love making sound effects in our modern audio drama production. So I'm I'm really fascinated about what you guys did back in the day, because I'm sure many of them were practical effects that you recorded. Did you develop a lot of sound effects on your own?
0: Well, it was a matter you would get a script. And you'd look at what it needed, and you'd take a look at what was available through recorded sound effects and what had been recorded into the library from previous recording engineers and sound effects personnel and then you would basically say well that doesn't really work <laughs> <laughs> and my whole thing was and i, I got some heat from this from uh, some of the other sound effects people but my whole thing was well just because it's recorded doesn't mean i have to use it and i preferred to do live sound effects whereas uh, some of the other guys might be 70% recorded. Generally, I was less than that. I was maybe 40% recorded, 60% live. Right. Because, you know, I always threatened that if I ever wrote a book, it would be 1,000 ways to close a door. (laughs) That's
1: great. So do you find when you were doing these live sound effects,
0: did you find it helped the actors with staying in the moment as well? Yeah, because we would rarely put recorded sound effects in at the same time the actors were performing other than you know in the background you know the birds or if there was some weird sound effect that was needed that was recorded we might feed it in at a very low level into the studio but then knowing that well we're going to post that sound effect and i'll post it at a much higher level so you won't hear the lower level The lower level will just be another texture in the sound. But when you're walking up a stair and a character is supposed to be tired, I think it resonated with the actor that this is how, oh, oh, that's right. I'm really tired. Okay, so so it affected his performance. I remember working with Robert Closier, and if you remember, he was Relic on The Beachcombers. Oh, yes. But he loved doing radio drama, and I, I loved Robert. He was just fantastic. There was not a nightfall, but another drama I was working on that Robert was there. And Robert was a barber. And Robert said, could I have the scissors? Could I do the scissors? And I was thinking for a second. I said, yeah. You know, many people, I wouldn't give them the scissors. Right. With Robert, I gave him the scissors. And I just reminded him that the scissors have to be in relation to the other actor. We set it up so that the other actor was slightly in front of him and down. And then Robert was just a little bit of, uh, above him. And so Robert was doing the hair and the whole thing. And the guy actually got a really good haircut out of it.
1: <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Was that Vanishing Point? What, what audio drama was that, or radio drama was that? It was probably 25 years ago. <laughs> yes, no, I can't remember the title of all of them. <laughs> I'm not expecting you to, Chris, and I appreciate all that. Did you have a love of radio drama before you got this role, or was this something that you just sort of fell into? It's a little bit
0: both. I remember one day, I think I was oh, either 12 or 14, and for some reason I was home from school, and, you know, nothing... Going on. And uh, uh, at that time, we had a black and white TV that would decide when it wanted to work and when it didn't want to work, kind of thing. So the black and white TV was basically a radio for all intents and purposes. <laughs> I, d- I didn't know what Batman looked like on TV until the last season because we finally got a color TV that worked. Right. So I had no idea what Batman looked like. <laughs> so you can imagine I was listening to Batman and the Lone Ranger. And, you know, the Wild Wild West and all these shows. And I had no idea what these characters looked like, but I heard them on TV. Right. So it was like a blind person. But I had no realization. You know, I still knew it was TV. I had no realization that, oh, well, there was radio and, you know, somewhere they did more than just play music or report the news. So I was home, I was laying in my bedroom and I flipped on the radio and it was like the same boring stuff that you heard a thousand times and I started flipping the channel and I came upon this station and there was a play going on. And I said, "Oh, that's cool." And I find get myself getting kind of into this play and listening to it. Oh, that that'd be cool. That must be a neat job. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you at that point? Somewhere between 12 and 14. And I was already the school DJ at noon hour. So I was already kind of interested in the radio from that standpoint. But after hearing this thing called a radio drama, I said, no, that's kind of cool. And then I would tune in and why am I getting current affairs? No, I want that radio (laughs) drama thing. (laughs) And then I found out we had a guy, a famous broadcaster in the Vancouver region named Jack Cullen. And he had a show late at night, called the Owl Prowl, And up until like 11 o'clock, he'd be playing music and what have you. And that was cool. But after the 11 o'clock news, he'd come back and I can't remember what it was called, something like network replay or something like that. And so when I found out about him, I'd take a nap around nine o'clock set my alarm off for 11 o'clock and just (laughs) go into a little fantasy world for an hour because uh it would either be the inner sanctum or the whistler or the shadow or command performance and uh so i'd be listening to these radio dramas and i thought god that's kind of neat that's kind of neat and then, then jack cullen opened a store record store and in the back of the record store he put his broadcast studio mm-hmm. and there was a big window at the back of the store section that looked into the radio studio. So I started to go out at three o'clock and I'd get on a bus and I'd go up and kind of hang because right in front of the window to the studio was all the old Mark V and right. these kind of records that would be the classic radio shows on record. I put together a little collection of those over the years and every one Once in a while, you'd be there and Cullen would be pre-taping something that he was going to put on that night. And you couldn't really hear it. You'd listen really carefully and you, you couldn't really hear it through the windows. You could hear something going on. So at that point, I thought, oh, okay, so... All he's doing is like playing them. He's not doing them, but it's still cool, right? Sure. But he was playing them. He wasn't doing them. And then through everything I ended up developing, through the time I was working at McDonald's and the time I was working at Sears, dearly departed Sears. Yes. uh, (laughs) At the Sears point is where I was able to buy a reel-to-reel machine. So now I had a reel-to-reel machine and I could get my tapes relatively cheaply because you know i had a discount at sears and plus the fact i would wait until there was a big sale so <laughs> then i'd go in and i'd buy like you know 10 7-inch reels or reel tapes and you know so now i'm starting to record things off of cullen and anywhere else i can find stuff and, and you know there's a lot of great stuff and then somewhere along the line there was this someone played orson wells <laughs> the war of the worlds right Mercury Radio Theater. And uh, 1938. So, and then I found out everything that happened around that. And I thought, oh, gee, you could really excuse the word fuck up, people. Yeah. If you did it right. Suspending the reality and all that and the power of just what the voice could do. And so, go ahead a few years. I graduate high school. I apply to university. And, oh, sure, you can come to university. Yeah, but I really want to go to BCIT because they have a radio course. (laughs) And BCIT didn't accept me. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So here I am. I can go to university, but I can't go to BCIT. Ain't gonna happen. (laughs) 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 So now suddenly you're pushed into, well, that's what I really want to do. So I've got to figure out a way to do that. The next point was I decided, okay, if I can't get into the day school, I'll go into the night school. So I'm still working at Sears at that point and still got my tapes and everything else. And now I go to BCIT night school and now I've got a full studio.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and I've got other students that are willing to do things. <laughs> so I passed night school, but I got into trouble because basically the last half hour was free time, you know, where you could do your own thing. So I'd get like three or four people And I would do these. Uh, funny radio commercials. <laughs> oh, really? That I had written. Things like BNR Plumbing for that swimming pool that wasn't installed. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> that was, oh, sure. my. I mean, today, that's totally acceptable. Right. But at the time, humor in a commercial. Oh. No, 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 no. You cannot do. Oh, so I got. That's amazing. Um, well, what was my Doug Short and Larry Rose were my two instructors in radio production. And Larry was cool. You know, he had worked at the CBC see in the news department and he was cool but Doug Short was old school he was old school I mean they would give you mathematical formulas for how much time you could record on a piece of tape and my reaction was I'd look at a piece of tape and I'd say oh there's maybe five minutes of tape there yeah so safety wise I'd better say three but they had math he was handing out mathematical formulas how many you know and (laughs) not considering well hold it you got to wrap it around the rear so I worked out on the particular machines we were using that you really needed to use about 25 inches of tape on the reel. And you'd need 25 inches on the other side. So I'd get this formula and I'd put down the answer and then minus 25. Okay, that, that many feet of tape I can record for 87 seconds. And of course, his thing was, well, no, you can actually record for 93 seconds. No, because you're not putting leader on the tape. So right. you can't... So. We had disagreements. And then, you know, I was smart enough to know that I'm not going to pass this course if i act like a smart ass. So I just okay, fine. You know, <laughs> yeah. I did do physics in high school. I knew how to add. <laughs> so I gave him the answer he wanted and I passed the course. But the weird thing is, once I passed that course, I applied for a job at the CBC and I applied for a job as a summer relief radio technician. And I thought, oh, this is great. They'll hire me. I'll start doing that drama stuff. And they, <laughs> well, first of all, they hired me for the mailroom. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is what you trained for, of course. <laughs> yeah, that, that was what I had trained for. And then from there, every time there was a posting for, at that point, I figured, well, get in the technical area anyways. So if there was a posting for TV or there was a posting for radio, I would apply for them. Never got them. <laughs> then I ended up going into the central registry department, which was the offshoot of personnel. And there... I sent my little desk and I took pieces of paper that had been classified by other people. And then I started putting them in the appropriate file folders.
1: (laughs) Internal mail.
0: (laughs) Yeah, internal mail. Well, (laughs) network mail as well. Sure, yes. Yeah. But in those days, everything was teletype and came in, came out, but everything had to be filed. And no one had done that job for six months. Mm -hmm. So I came in, you know, I gave you a little idea of my little studio here. Imagine that studio filled with boxes filled with paper just thrown in piles Uh and they all had a code written on them from someone else but beyond that i'm sick to my stomach
1: just thinking of
0: it so so that's what i did for the next six months wow for the next six months i'm doing this there's this whole pile in the corner it's about a third of the room and it's I M, which is information which basically is pr And I found out that this stuff was basically thrown out every six months. And I'm looking at all this stuff, and I'm looking at the dates, and everything is stale dated. It's over six months old. So what I did is I quickly divided them into their individual categories, labeled the outside of the box, what the category was, and I didn't file them. I took them down to storage, knowing that in three weeks, all that stuff is going to go bye-bye. So, you know, I was a little sweaty about it, but I thought, okay, fine. Now, now I can get down to the real thing. So now I was able to basically stop and read everything that came through. So now I was getting caught a, up. Yeah. yeah. So I was now at the point where I could figure out what was going on. And I started to be able to go around and uh, meet different people and what have you. And at that time, a fellow named Gordon Sadler, who had been the director of the province in Saskatchewan in Regina, had moved out to Vancouver for the last couple of years of his CBC career. And he was the head of the purchasing department now. And he was an old radio guy, and I struck up conversations with him and this kind of thing. And the CBC in Vancouver was moving into the regional broadcast center because basically radio had been in the Hotel Vancouver. Oh. I had spent most of my time working at a building on Butte Street, which is where the personnel offices were. Across the street was the television production offices and where they did the hourglass and the Irish rovers and it was the old garage. So because everybody was moving to the new building, I got the opportunity to apply for a summer relief job at the Hotel Vancouver in radio. I was turned down again, and then from there, found out that Gordon Sadler was going to be the acting director of radio, because the two people that were running radio, the technical department now, were retiring. Gordon Sadler was going to go over there, and Don Ray, who was going to be the director of of radio was seconded to the new building. So Gordon one day said, you know, Chris, I know you you're interested in working in radio and what have you. I know you've, you know, we've talked about your BCIT experience and what have you. Do you want to come over and work with me in radio as a summer relief technician? So I said, "Um, let Let me me think about it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Then from there. So I was in And the first morning I showed up, I expected, you know, they're going to run me through things for a week. And I'm not going to be sitting behind a console or anything. It's going to be cool. I walk in. They walk me around the building. There's a fellow named Dusty Hopper. (laughs) (laughs) And he's an old transmitter technician. And for some reason, he's no longer on transmitters, but they've got him working in the Booth E, which was the FM booth. And so anyways, there I am. I go down and Rusty's sitting there and he says, ah, okay, you're the new guy, eh? And he's doing a show that the voice tracks are on tape and there's records, Vasco records, music from four centuries. And so anyways, he says, okay, that's the pot. So that, 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 okay, here's the script, there's the tape, there's the records. And he gets up and he walks out of the room. <laughs> What the? Uh, honest to God, honest to God, he walks out of the room. And last thing he says is, uh the record will end in about 30 seconds. Ah. Hit the tape. T- so that, and I come, you know, he's dressed in a, in a light shirt and everything else. I'm in a suit. It's my first day in radio. Uh, so I sweat for the next half hour. And he comes back after a half hour, walks in and says, OK, uh, you need to go to coffee now. <laughs> so I get out, but I walk out. And at that point, I'm wondering, you know, if this is what it's like, am I going to come back? <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, and wow. I didn't know that through this whole half hour period, he had gone next door to the recording room where Bev Small worked. Bev was a man, but his actual name was Beverly Small. Right. But he was a great guy. And Rusty had gone next to the recording room with Bev Small. And the two of them had been listening <laughs> to what I was doing in the room. And, you know, it wasn't until a few weeks later that I found out all of this. It's all sink and swim stuff, right? That was their way, you Mm -hmm. know. And then later in the afternoon, I was working in the recording room. Well, I didn't know you could listen to different things because everything was, you know, I thought, okay, you push that button. That comes into that machine because there are multiple machines, and then you would record the show for later broadcast. I didn't know you could push that button way up there and listen to what was going on in an individual studio. Right. So I didn't learn that for a couple of weeks, and that was when Rusty and Bev told me, "Yeah, we were listening to you all the time. <laughs> we could hear you. We could hear you sweat." <laughs> That's amazing. So basically, uh, you know, from there I went on to do Bob Kerr. How old were you when you first got this? Particular Uh, position. Let's see. I was probably still 19. Wow. So, anyways, (laughs) kept applying for radio technician jobs, permanent. And didn't get them, but I kept getting extended. My temporary position kept getting extended because they were moving into the new building, so they needed people to get them there. And then finally, after about a year and a half in the new building, I was offered a full-time job. Now I was a radio technician. Mm. (laughs) But I had gotten, other than meeting Robert Chesterman and Don Kowalchuk and... John Merritt and a few of the other producers along the way I hadn't touched radio drama when I was working the weekend shift yeah I got to play the tape of Dr. Mondolo (laughs) you'd have a network feed of air farce and this kind of stuff but I hadn't touched radio drama I hadn't even played back a real radio drama tape because I was working the sign-on shift the radio drama tapes didn't come out until later in the day (laughs)
1: right
0: okay so the only time I heard radio dramas if I was driving home Listening on the radio Sunday afternoon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And you were longing at this point. It's just like I imagine driving home going, Why is this not
0: my shift? And I thought what was going to ultimately happen is I was just going to, it seemed a lot of music stuff was happening. So I thought, Oh well, I'll probably end up working in music. Okay. And you you know, music's cool. I was doing music freelance on the outside world, so you know I can do music, share, that's cool. And then after uh, spending a number of years doing Off the Record and Pot Hair and a number of other programs, uh, one day I'm asked into the supervisor's office, oh, what have I done now? <laughs> and then they asked uh, if I would have any interest in going into radio sound effects because there's already two people there, Joe Silva and Jay Hyrene, and they're having the need to train someone else in, the, in that area because both of those guys were in their 40s and you know how long are they gonna last (laughs) i go in there i kind of assist them with live effects and go out oh i need this you know so here here i am 80 pound nagger going out and and walking across lions gate bridge do you know how much a damn bridge moves when cars are going over it and you're walking with an eighty-pound grip, <laughs> oh you're, wow! You're holding on to everything, so you can't yeah. hold the railing, right? Yeah, but <laughs> that was but scary. The kind of gigs I got, <laughs> of course. <laughs> oh, Our sound you know, effects man down. on
1: the scene, right? <laughs> Can you climb up that rigging and get a good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so they had lots of fun with me. What year would that have been?
0: Probably late seventies. Okay,
1: because Nightfall began at eighty, so you were already practicing as a sound effects person before you got there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Cool. And the first drama that I actually did the sound effects solo was produced by Don Kowalczyk. And I believe it was called Beowulf and the Bush Pilot. It's a little sad for me because these days I'll watch Corner Gas. Well, Janet Wright was the female lead in Beowulf and the Bush Pilot. Oh, wow. And I worked with Janet so many times over the years since then. With her passing, it was quite sad. Yes. Because I probably did about a dozen dramas with Janet over the years.
1: I was going to ask you about your experiences with the actors, because you would have had a fairly close relationship in the respect that, not like other actors, but still you had to work with them one-on-one in many cases.
0: That's right. I was them drinking water. I was <laughs> I, I was their steps. Right. In one instance, I was their farts, you know? <laughs> you know? It's a very intimate uh, relationship. Right. And the whole thing is, with most actors, you would work with them maybe once and... That would be it. You know, you, but you'd watch it. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're a serial killer on that TV series. Oh, well, I remember when they were a nice person. <laughs>
1: We make radio drama or audio drama, as we like to call it now, because it's not just for the radio. But I'm interested in a bit of the process, if you can remember any aspects. So when you had a show to do, be it Nightfall or another radio drama, did they give you the script all intact? Did you guys do a run-through and you'd be making markings in the margins about, well, yeah, they said this sound effect, but they'll need this, this, this? Like, how did that work from when you get the script to when it's finished?
0: Okay, generally, you would get the ha-ha final draft a couple of weeks before the actual production was going to be recorded. And of course, by this time, it had been vetted by any number of people, script editors and the producers, producer directors, because in radio, basically, the producer was the director, associate producer, and they would have gone through and they would have decided what music might be needed or what was available many times, because you weren't always able to use what music you wanted to. There might be some rights issues. And then the script would come to us. And my process, which was different than Joe's and, and Jay's, was basically I would, read the script two or three times in the first day I got it and I would just read it through and then I would basically go to coffee, go for a walk, what have you, and then come back and I would read it again. And then I'd go out, have another little walk, think about it. Then I would come back and I'd read it the third time. And the third time I read it, I would be making notes. So I'd have you know just massive notes about this sound, that sound, what have you. And by then I had some idea of what would work and what wouldn't work, what was needed and what wasn't needed. So then I'd have my list. And the next day I'd come in, read the script again, referencing my list. And now I'm writing on the script. Uh, my cues. Right. Sometimes the cues would be written for you, right. but most of the time, 90% of the, the sounds wouldn't be listed. Now I've spent, by the time I've got my list together, I haven't really drawn any sound and there's three days gone. Right, right. And at that point I said, oh God, I'm never going to get this ready. I'm never going to get this ready. Then you're putting everything together. At that time, The recorded stuff were on carts. Say you had three or four live effects at the same time, it gets very difficult. A four-track at this point. Yeah. We were just working... Well, actually, at that time, we were working with two-track, multiple two-track machines in Vancouver. In Toronto, they had 16-tracks. Wow. We didn't have 16-track until Mm -hmm. Toronto replaced their... 16 track with a 24 track and that's when we got a 16 track (laughs) it was the old ampex 16 track so shows like years later like king lear that we did out of vancouver with john giuliani shows of that type we (laughs) finally had a 16 track but basically just because we didn't have a 16 track it didn't mean that we didn't have to make it sound like we had a 16 track so we would have how many cart machines we had six, seven, eight. We had 10 tracks of cart machines, like 10 cart machines. Right. We had a separate studio in the back of the drama studio where we would do live effects like post-production live effects and we had all these cart machines so we could have 12 different carts in a scene and you know we'd be doing a live effect hitting the cart machines as as we did it so it was timing like a, was everything yeah it, it was a dance for sure and then of course if you had to change the cards you'd have to bring down the microphone pull out the carts, put in the new cards bring up the microphone if you have any more live effects that are happening post and all this because if you know when you pull out a cart You hear it, right? so you had to have that mic down. We had rigged up things where underneath the table, we would have the surface that we would need, either rocks or grass or the things to make those sound effects underneath the table. And it was kind of like a heavy packing cloth, and you'd put that on your knees as you're doing the effect so that you could gently pull out a cart and put one in, and you wouldn't hear it because of the volume of the sound you were doing underneath the table. Wow. (laughs) It was quite crazy. And of course, that's post-production because while the actors were there, you were doing live effects with them.
1: And you were also measuring their volume,
0: making sure they weren't peaking. There'd be a recording engineer in the... More than one engineer working at a time. You had a sound effects engineer or a sound effects specialist and a recording engineer in the early days. right. Later on, there was one guy because they had basically laid off everybody else and I was it. (laughs) <laughs> but that but, but that was years later. Right. Yeah, that was from about 98 on something like that. So how did so. you
1: fall into Nightfall then?
0: Well, Nightfall was a regular production. And even though I was one of the sound effects uh, specialists, it was just Joe Silva and myself. And Jay Harbin was kind of at the end of his time in sound effects. Uh, so I later found out that I was basically being groomed to replace Jay, which I didn't know at the time. But there was political things happening in the background. As they always are. <laughs> yeah, as, as they always are. But because Jay was involved in the union and what have you. And right. A lot of stuff he had to deal with from that standpoint. So anyways, I was being, unbeknownst to me, groomed to replace him. And when Nightfall, I did, I can't remember the specific titles, but I had done the sound on a couple of Nightfalls when it was being produced out of Toronto. And then I believe it was the second season came to Vancouver. I think it was the last season, the third season that came to Vancouver. Yeah, third season. So
1: you were doing post-production sound effects for the stuff they would send you from Toronto then?
0: No, we would actually record Nightfalls in Vancouver. Okay. And once they were finished, without the tops and the tails, okay, which would be the announcements. and Then they would be sent to Toronto and then they would be broadcast. So basically what happened is we would do productions in Vancouver that would then be sent to Toronto and then they would be packaged in Toronto for, for the series. But at that time, the bulk of... Of nightfall were being done in Toronto. Right. We were more doing things like morningside dramas right. and Sunday matinees and this kind of stuff. We were actually almost producing the same amount of network minutes out of Vancouver that were being done out of Toronto. And yet we had less than a third of the staff. Oh jeez. <laughs> I
1: can imagine. Who was working as a producer out of
0: Vancouver? John Giuliani, Don Walchuk. Right. And he's the one who actually produced the last season of Nightfalls, like the exec produced as well, out of Hoover. Uh, Robert Chesterman, John Merritt did a few dramas. Uh, There was one other producer, but I'm not sure his name, but he was there for a very short time.
1: Overall, when it came to the various different radio dramas, where would you rate Nightfall as in an experience for you? Where would you place it?
0: Definitely the series would certainly be in the top five as far as the series I did. Keeping in mind that you know, I was still kind of young, and and of course, you know, I, I didn't do just Nightfall. I also did Vanishing Point right after it. Yeah, I did, I did Flynn, the Flynn series. Pocket City Blues, there were sextets, multiple sextets. It's so foggy
1: at 40 years away from now, I can understand that, and we're looking at the 40th anniversary of Nightfall. Is there any specific memories that you have, be it of
0: actors or productions, that really resonate with you even now? Well, one of the... I mean, there's so many things. There was uh, one show called Lifeline, where there was a scene where guy's hands had been scrubbed clean of you know, yeah. the light lines, right. and where he gets stuck in an elevator. And we had to do this whole scene of him getting stuck in the elevator, being very frantic, trying to get out of the elevator and ultimately listen to the episode. Uh, <laughs> but it doesn't end well for him. <laughs> And so you had to do this whole scene where he's trying to get out of the elevator. And, you know, somehow he gets up on top of the elevator and we didn't have an elevator in the studio. Of course not. Yeah. You know, I went around the building and I got pieces of uh, reel-to-reel machines and <laughs> all these pieces of metal that would clank and clunk and what have you. Sure. As soon as he breaks out of the elevator, then you've got the. <gasps> You know, the sound of the wind rushing up and down the elevator shaft. Shaft. And ultimately, he takes a misstep and it's. "Ah, ah, You know, and and of course the actor there we actually did that all live wow so you know the uh, recording engineer i think it was jerry stanley okay though when you hear this sound hit the reverb
1: well yeah because you'd have different reverb everything yeah there'd be a muffled sound inside the elevator and then much more echoey when you get into the shaft for sure that's right
0: so we work this whole thing, and we kind of just gently run through it a couple of times, not at full volume. Okay, then, then there'll be this sound and, and that. Because if you actually try to do it each and every time, it's not going to work. There needs to be this synchronicity to make it work. Because remember, we weren't on multi-track. We were on two tracks. And so then if time came, okay, we're going to do this? Okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. So I'm in the back room. The actor is on the main mic in the other room. I've got the headphones and what have you. So we're doing this, and I'm doing the sound and trying to get up the sign. And yeah, bang, bang. And on the third, bang, boom. And I ended up throwing that piece of metal across the room. <laughs> It bounced off the wall. It left a big gash in the in the wall. And, uh, and the next day when they came in, there was a piece of plywood there. And they didn't know why there was a piece of plywood there.
1: Did you record the whole thing together? Or did you do it scene and then took a break
0: and rehearsed it to the scene? Well, generally what would happen is once you had prepped the script and what have you, the first morning of production, there would be a read-through. And everybody would read their script, read through and what have you. And then everybody went for a coffee break, except me, because now I realize, oh, I need this and I need this and I don't see you. You'd run in, and hopefully, it was on cartridge so you could just pull it. Sometimes, oh, I'm going to need to do that live. Okay, I can write that down. Okay, that'll be recorded tomorrow. So I'm okay. I can prep that tonight. Sometimes, Harry. Yeah. And then we had one producer, John Giuliani, who came from a theater background. So he decided after a while that he wanted to do the productions live. Oh. Yeah. So he wanted the recorded sound. And everything, everything live as if it was a stage production. So I would then have to really make decisions about sound and what have you. And I would go into those productions with two reel to reel machines. The background for scene one would be on one tape, scene two would be on the next tape. So I could go back and forth right. between the tapes, meanwhile doing everything else. And then I would have five seconds when, you know, that little right. music. That was my time to flip things.
1: Do you think he did that because he was trying to save money or that he just liked the theater style and wanted the immediacy of everything? You
0: know, you didn't really save money. Yeah. Because he paid the actors the same as he would if they had been there for a three-day call, even if they were in and out in one day. So he wasn't saving money. I think he just wanted the immediacy of it. Sure, We probably did a half dozen dramas that way. And I think some of them were nightfalls. And, you know, but it was crazy. Man. I can imagine. <laughs> the creation of season three was kind of strange because at that time I was basically working as the packaging en- engineer doing sound effects. And also when either Gene Loverock or Jerry Stanley weren't available, I was doing board work for other sound effects people. At that time, it was Jay Irene and Joe Silva. Uh, I remember one night, Dawn came to me and said, oh, well, we're going to be producing... Nightfall out of Vancouver. I said, oh, oh, great. He said, we got to find a host. And, you know, so we were joking around and I, I said, well, Don, why don't you be the host? <laughs> Save some money. <laughs> That's right. I recorded Don and he listened back to it. And it's just it's just not working. It's not the sound we're looking for. I said, well, what are you looking for? Well, I'm looking for Sydney Greenstreet. <laughs> <laughs> so we would always joke around in the studio. Keep in mind, this is late at night. And uh, oh, Sydney Greenstreet. <laughs> so he said, Go in the studio, I'll record. <laughs> so I, I did. And of course, I'm laughing like crazy, right? right. You know, I'm not an on air Although my voice did appear in a lot of dramas uncredited, I'm not an on air person. Not on purpose in that way. <laughs> got not, not on purpose. So we do that. Jeez, who can do it? Who can do it? And then we got this idea from the Bundolo days Bill Ryder. Bill, Bill can do it. So we get Bill in, the script's being written for him, and we tell him, but we can't know it's you. No one can know it's you. It's inside, right? Right. No one talks about it outside of this room. So Bill Ryder comes in, he does Frederick Hend, and you can't tell it's Bill Ryder. But then we get word that they want a picture of him. (laughs) So Bill comes in with a picture of his father in a kind of a Coat and hat, and the whole thing is. It looks like Orson Welles. It's an Orson Welles. That becomes the joke that this is actually Bill's father. Wow, that's great. And yeah, so for the whole season, you know, the last season of Nightfall, Frederick Hand was the host, the weird spooky voice and everything else. But whenever it came on Radio Weekly or or any pictures of Frederick Hand, it was this one picture of Bill's father. (laughs) And finally, once the series was off the air, I think it was Bill Howell wanted to know Who the hell Frederick Hend was? And why only one picture and this whole thing? So finally, Don tells them it's Bill Ryder. No, it isn't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's Bill Ryder. No, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if he ever accepted that it was Bill Ryder. That's amazing. Bill Ryder was Frederick Henn.
1: (laughs) Thank you for that story. That's beautiful. We are still making audio drama now more than ever for some reason, not CBC so much, but other people independently. What advice could you give people when it comes to creating sound effects or, or just making really effective audio drama from a
0: technical side? I think basically use space. Don't overcrowd the spectrum, the sound spectrum. I actually did a demo a number of years ago of a radio play of how we built up a particular sequence. And for the first part, I had just the voice. Second part, I had the sound effects and the voice. And then the third section was the sound effects, the voice, and the music. And each one adds an element so between the three you can't allow one to get in the way of the other right. and i know when we were doing the flynn series there was a few incidences where joe i was doing the the engineering at that point and joe silva was doing the sound effects and there were a number of incidents in that series where there would be a narration and you'd have the voice was fine no problem but you'd put in all the sound effects and all the music And it was too much. And we found that sometimes you'd always need music behind the narration, because that defined the narration. Right. But sometimes you virtually had to remove the sound effects or you had to put it so far in the background that it was just a minuscule texture. Right. Not up tight with the voice as you would in a normal scene. Yeah, you didn't want it to compete with the actor and the and the script that way. I get it. Yeah. And and sometimes it was a matter of, you know, you'd be going the voice is going, and then cut the music, quick fade, bang, a sound effect, and then uh, all during the narration. So you basically had to play with the sound as if sound was music as well, and you're mixing music, but instead of music, it's music, it's sound, it's the voice, the voice has to Remain present, but not too present. The whole thing is, I guess it all boils down to don't fall into the traps of, oh, that's how we've done it. Always done it with flynn basically before flynn in vancouver well okay we'll leave uh four beats for music we'll leave this with flynn i remember the first episode i was sitting with don and we had done the whole thing on 16 track tape it was all done we had left the spaces and what have you and i turned to don once we had mixed it i said don are you happy with that and he said well it's okay And I said, can we start again? We've got all the tracks. We've got everything we need. Can we start again? And so he said, Well, okay, okay, what have you got in mind? I said, I want to strip out all the music and I want to mix the whole thing down without music. So that way we'll have each of our individual scenes, we'll have our narrations and what have you. So he said, yeah, because we had an automated console at that time. So I popped off the music tracks, mixed it all down to two track, and then took the two tracks and started laying them in. Only this time, okay, here's our opening theme. I laid in the opening theme and once it got to a certain point, I hit the two track. And it started to play back. So instead of basically music had to fit in, now it was the performance had to fit with the music. Right. And we were so happy when we finished that and the way it flowed differently and everything had a rhythm. It was all on the beat, Right. sometimes tricking the beat. So you'd come in just a little bit earlier with the voice and it would right. kind of, oh, that's wrong. Well, yeah, that scene is, has tension. And right. now it's got more tension because you sense through the right. years something wasn't right 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 Very Even though cool. it was right because we decided we were going to do it on the half right. beat and so that's how we started to package when don and i worked together that's how we would decide we were going to package all the time and right. so that's how we did it and then john later on started to package that way too because he had heard what was happening kind of oh yeah that, that sounds good But whereas when we were doing everything hot to two-track, you couldn't do that. It wasn't something you could do. But now that we had a 16-track machine and later digital, that's what we did on everything out of Vancouver. And it made a major difference. So what I would say is for people doing it now, get the best sound you can. Use the space. Don't fall into, just because that's the way it was done in the past, experiment and once you find something that really works, then you can say, Okay, now that's the everything's flowing together, everything's working, it feels good, and it draws you in. Yeah. The best radio drama is going to be something that draws you in. And remember that the only screen you have in an audio drama is this the screen between your two ears. Right. There's no eyes, you know, the <laughs> the the eye is the forehead. It's what's in there. And just live in your forehead. Turn the lights down. If it's a noisy environment, put your headphones on and just go with it. And if you, for some reason, if you end up falling asleep halfway through it, listen to it again when you're not tired. Because listening to audio drama is tiring because you don't use those muscles anymore you're using your eyes for everything well one thing i used to do is i would listen to old classic movies and i'm talking about 40s 50s of course (laughs) yes there were ones although they're old classics now because i'm an old classic but (laughs) (laughs) and listen to the prisoner of zenda listen to the maltese falcon without the picture and just hear what those actors did with their voices you listen to stuff today and you close your eyes for, you know, a minute or two and you think, God, the voice isn't doing what the action on the screen is doing. It doesn't work. And I think of how many film and television actors that I've worked with over the years and they loved radio drama because suddenly their whole body, not just the physical body, but their whole body had to be in it. Years after nightfall, I did a radio drama and we were recording it in the Vancouver East End. And, you know, we didn't think of anything. We were doing it in somebody's house and we had a starter pistol that we always used in the studio for certain sounds. And there was a scene we did outside in the backyard. It was a very short scene and it was, halt, Vancouver police. That was it. And I was in the basement of the house running the mic. We had the microphones run all over the place. And I was in the basement of the house. And they had said, we're going to take a 15-minute break. And I said, well, I've got no place to go. I'm just going to sit, sit here in the basement. And 15 minutes goes, and I'm not seeing anybody. Half hour goes. I'm not seeing anybody. 40 minutes later, producer comes down. And I said, what's going on? I said, you know, it's- And she said, you didn't hear anything? Said, no, I didn't hear anything. There have been 20 cop cars. Oh, no. (laughs) The whole streets for four blocks around had been cordoned off. (laughs) We had our war of the world, man. (laughs) (laughs) You had your war of the world. Oh, that's wonderful. Some neighbors had heard that, thought that it was real, and they had called the police. The police. Came back and said, We don't have any officers in that area. So they sent in 20 cars, man. 20. Cars. And finally, after they have been waiting out there, they must have been waiting out there for about a half hour because we had still recorded after this, you know, done, right? So finally, a car had driven up the street and you know, they, the report was that it had come from such and such an address. So they went up and they knocked on the front door. And this is two armed police officers. Jeez. Of course, the only thing they saw was a CBC radio van in front. What is, you know, is the CBC news already here? What's, what the hell's going on? <laughs> went Right through the, the cordoned off area, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they come up and the producer, Heather Brown, goes to the front door. And the other producer at that time, Kathleen Flaherty, is also there. And thank goodness that some of the actors involved were well-known and could be identified. One of the stars of Da Vinci's Inquest (laughs) was one of the actors. And he was actually the one who was being shot at. So they see these known actors and they're kind of wondering what's going on here. Oh, no. And so that was my War of the Worlds moment. (laughs) And I missed it. (laughs) And you missed it. I was in the basement wondering what the heck was going on behind, behind my mixing console. Well,
1: thank you so much. These are wonderful stories. I've been speaking with Chris Cutrus and I'm just entranced with everything you've been talking to me about. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate this and I hope we can continue the conversation sometime in the future. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. A little addendum to our show. After I had finished recording, Chris told me about a time he and some friends had bought six copies from a series on BBC Radio. He was listening to the show in his studio when a CBC producer stopped by and asked him what it was. Chris told him they were listening to a radio drama series. The producer said, You know, that ought to be on the air. Chris told him it was in England. Not long after, that producer bought the rights, and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy played on morning shows all across Canada in 1979. As Chris completed his reveal, I felt the breath knocked out of me, because a young Jack Ward was listening then, and while he had listened to old-time radio vinyl that his parents had bought him, this was the first time he had heard really modern audio drama. And he was entranced with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, almost 20 years now, writing and producing audio drama of my own, and I have Christopher Cutris directly to thank for being such an inspiration. And all this time, I had no idea. Thank you, Chris. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Monday Matinee right here on the Mutual Audio Network. Please consider subscribing to other days of the Mutual Feeds, including Tuesday Terrors for Horror, Wednesday Wonders, our science fiction and fantasy magazine, Thursday Thrillers for Action, Adventure, Mystery, and Crime Drama, Friday Follies, our end-of-the-week comedy series, Saturday Story Circle for Kids and Families alike, and Sunday Showcase, bringing you the very newest in audio releases for the week, from our United Artists of Audio, right here on the Mutual Audio Network. The Mutual Audio Drama Network, where we listen
0: and imagine together.